everybody to the Beards and Bible podcast. If you're watching on YouTube and it looks like Gabe is from a top secret bunker six miles below the surface of the earth. He's uh, actually Gabe. Tell us where you are. I'm in a little uh, village um, called it's called Moshav here in Israel, northern Israel. It's uh, Moshav is called uh, Remote Naftali. And I'm about maybe four or five miles from the Lebanese border. So uh, it's pretty cool. I'm out here just kind of on the Israeli countryside near the region called like the Golan Heights, if you're familiar with your Israeli geography. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So how long have you guys been over there? Uh, it'd be, I think we got here Friday of last week, so we're looking at four or five days now. Wow. We've been here. Yeah. So I've been, I've been following your adventures on Facebook, and it seems like you guys have hit yeah. quite... Uh, Man, you guys have been super busy. What all have you done? Oh, a bunch of stuff. Uh, we, so we just started. I'm not going to go like place by place. I know a lot of these names probably don't mean anything to a lot of people. But uh, we started off in Jerusalem and spent like three days in Jerusalem, which is in like central um, Israel. And then we went to uh, Tiberias, which is up in the Galilee on the southwest side of the Galilee. And then we today we just kind of worked our way around the coast of the Sea of Galilee or Lake Lake Kinneret as it's known here, and it's kind of hit city after city, little town after town, like biblical sites from the New Testament. And then we turned north today and headed up to um, we were going to go to Chorazin, which is one of the cursed towns that Jesus curses, mm-hmm. but it was closed. So because Jesus curses, cursed it, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then we went to um, we went to in the Book of Joshua. There's a place called um, Tel Kadesh, huh. uh, which is one of the very first places that were that was conquered by the Israelites in the Book of Joshua. It was a Canaanite stronghold and temple. Um, so that was open. That's actually open twenty four seven. So we just drove up there, and it's kind of like this. You just walk around this like a Tel is like a really tall hill hmm. um, that's like civilizations built upon civilizations, and it gets taller and taller. And um, so, yeah, we just walk around. It's kind of like the crest of this really steep and kind of a bald, like, mountain. Um, there's no, there's very little tree cover on it. Um, and so the, there was these Canaanite temples up there, and then there was a Roman temple that was built much later. Um, and then it became, like, a uh, an out, outpost for, like, the Israeli army during the War for Independence in 1948. So there's a lot of little history packed on this little hill. And now we crossed over the valley, and we're in this other little hell this other hill, and on top of that is a village called Remote Naftali. So, wow, it's really cool. I wanted to get out and experience a little bit more Israeli life, way of life, and culture. And you know, tourists just don't come here to where I'm at. Um, so yeah, it was, it's kind of it feels like um, like remote, like uh, you know, Tennessee. Like you're going up into the mountains of Tennessee, and you're not going to like Gatlinburg. You're going to like some like for real town where they're logging stuff out of the forest and, you know, you're getting kind of your taste for true Tennessean culture, like in East Tennessee. Yeah. yeah, So we're kind of doing that. Wow. That's awesome. man. What would you say like your favorite site in Israel is if somebody's never visited Israel and you're like, Hey man, go here. What would be the one Mm -hmm. place you would say is super cool. Gives you an appreciation for the place. Yeah. Everything's so different. And everybody that comes here is different too, but, um, it's funny because this is my second time here and Stacy's first time. And 
I thought that she would fall in love with certain things and she hasn't. She's actually like things that I, I didn't expect more. And so, um, I don't know. It's all, it's all really interesting. And there's so many layers of history that are stacked upon each other when you come here and you really need months and months to dig into it and understand it all and get a good context of what's going on. But hmm. Israel is such a melting pot of religions and cultures and um, ethnic groups. Even um, it's hard to really put my finger on one thing and say like, yeah, this has been my favorite. Um, Hezekiah's tunnel is a really cool experience. If you haven't been to, um, and if, if you if you come to Jerusalem area, uh, go to the, the national park called City of David. And during the times of King Hezekiah, when the Assyrian army laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, King Hezekiah uh, rebelled against them and didn't surrender the city over to them. Um, but he built a wall uh, around the new part of Jerusalem to the west. And then the other thing that he did was he... Uh, channeled the waters of the Gihon Spring, which came out near the, the base of the temple, he channeled those, instead of them pouring into the Kidron Valley and going into kind of just no man's land and flowing away, he dug a channel underground through the bedrock of the city of Jerusalem and channeled them back into the, the city walls and into a reservoir called the what later became called the Pool of Siloam. Hmm. And... Later, when we see John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man telling him to rub the mud on his eyes. That happened at the Pool of Siloam. But um, that tunnel that Hezekiah commissioned to be built uh, is an amazing uh, feat of engineering. Um, they actually had a team from the north working their way downhill and a team from the south working their way uphill. And they met in the middle, um, these two teams with like pickaxes and torches and stuff. So... Recently, uh, that that tunnel has been excavated and opened up, and the spring water is flowing through it. And they allow you to go down into the tunnel, and it's maybe be, I think it's if I had to guess, correct me if I'm wrong, about a half a mile long. Wow! And it's like the perfect size of like for a man. Yeah. Okay, so picture like it's shoulder to shoulder in the walls, and it's like many times you have to hunch over to crawl through it, and um, other times it's like right at the top of your head. And it's about knee-deep spring water the entire way in pitch black. Oh, my goodness. So you're going through this. Yeah, if you're claustrophobic, it's not for you. But if you're going through this tunnel, this water is flowing under you. And, uh, like, your own your own body is, in, in some ways, like, almost, like, damming it up as you're walking. And it's pitch black, and you have to use your phone as a flashlight. Or we had a headlamp. Um, but you're going for, like, half a mile. And you can see the, the pickaxe marks in the walls of this tunnel still from these teams that dug wow. this. And, um if you know your biblical history, you know, that, that basically prepared the city of Jerusalem and set them up to where they could survive the siege from the Assyrian army. Um, but later, you know, of course that water was used to fill up the pool of Siloam. Um, you know, this, this tunnel is so, is so tiny and so tight. We were, Stacy and I were probably, Stacy and Noah and I were probably a hundred feet from the end of the tunnel and we could see light coming through the, the end of the tunnel. And I hear this flashing noise coming up towards us into the tunnel and i'm thinking that's weird because this is supposed to be just one way there's no way that whoever is walking up towards us and splashing is going to make it past <laughs> us and we get around the corner and there's a guy with a phone flashlight and his wife guess was his wife and the guy was kind of like a little bit like obese like arab man wearing nothing but 
like like <laughs> like whitey tidies yeah. and his wife was there behind him and he was leading the way so he's walking up and he comes up to me and i'm like you know i'm i'm short like my shoulders are filling this tunnel and the, the, the roof of the tunnel is like right here yeah. in my head and i and i was just like look at him and he doesn't speak english and he like wants to get by past me and keep walking there's no way man no way and i'm like there's there's no way man like i but sure enough like he like he like grabs me and like pushes me up against the wall and like shimmies his body and his belly and his just his underwear itself wow. like, past me and and makes it past me and then I, we did the same thing with his wife and it's like in this dark little tunnel and I look over at Stacy who's preparing to meet <laughs> like like face to face this like middle aged man in white tighties in this dark tunnel and I shine the flashlight on her face and just her expression is just priceless wow man. You truly are in the land yeah. of miracles, sir. You truly are. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. Well, Gabe, it's yeah. been awesome catching up with you, man, checking in. And uh, I'll uh, yeah. look forward to catching up with you and getting a full extended report whenever you return and, and talk more. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you uh, for, for checking yeah, in. I think I'm eight, hours, I'm eight hours ahead of you, and I've spent all day in the sun and hiking up and down hills and mountains, and I'm – you're gonna sleep well. Tired. Yeah, you're gonna sleep well tonight. I don't have to say good night yeah. in Hebrew, so I'll say shalom aleichem. Yeah, it's um, Buenos Buenos Aires. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the wrong country. Yeah, you'll figure it out. So. Yeah. No, it's Lila Toe. Lila Toe. I knew that. There you go. Yeah. All right. Good All night, right. Everybody. See you, man. Well, it sure was good catching up with Gabe. Sounds like things are going really well for him in Israel. And uh, man, kind of jealous of that guy. This is his. Second or third trip to Israel? Can't remember. Anyway, he's a seasoned world traveler. Nonetheless, it's always been a bucket list item of mine to go to Israel. So maybe one of these days I can make it out to the Holy Land and be accosted by big overweight Middle Eastern guys in their skivvies in Hezekiah's tunnel. What a bucket list item. Hmm. Well, tonight, just because it's me, I'm going to answer some email questions that have been sent in by listeners and uh, talk about a current event. So there is a, uh, I guess, a news item that has been trending recently, and I thought it would be fun to kind of take a look at it together. So, But first, let's look at some emails. So this is an email question that was sent in recently. And it says this, if the apostles thought Christ would return soon, a.k.a. the first century, does that mean we're already in the end times? Is this a 2,000-year period of silence from the book of Revelation till now? That's a great question. Thanks for sending it in. Um, I would say absolutely we are 1,000% living in the last days. Um, and yet at the same time, I would say the last day has not come. So we are in the last days. Yes, amen. We are closer right now to the return of Christ than we ever have been. And yet I don't think the last day has come. And I think it's really important as we talk about this stuff that we use the vocabulary of the New Testament. So the last days refers to the period of time that we are in now. And that is the period of time between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and his second coming or return. Um, 
Jude one eighteen calls this the last times. So does First Peter one twenty. First uh, John two eighteen calls this the last hour, and First Corinthians ten eleven calls it the end of the ages. And so, yeah, we're, we're living in the last days, the last time, the last hour, the end of the ages. That all of human history is kind of culminating in this last period of history in which we're living. Um, but there is coming a last day. There is coming a final day of God's salvation and wrath that's being revealed for all to see. That's First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. It talks about that. And so we don't know specifically when the day or the hour of the last day itself is coming. We know it's coming. We know it's coming soon. Jesus said we'll kind of know the season in which it's coming. And I would say if we look around us in the world right now, um, everything happening, uh, just just with the way that human civilization is going, wars, rumors of wars, all the things that Jesus talked about, I would say, yeah, we're in the season leading up to that last day. But um, I'm not really sure that we are in that last day yet. But I think once we get to the, the day itself, uh, we'll know. Um, so, yeah, we're in the last days. But biblically speaking, kind of, Human history can be understood in in kind of four ages. Uh, number one is the age of promise. That's the Old Testament. Uh, number two is the age of fil- fulfillment. That's the coming of Christ. That's his advent, his ministry, his death. And then the last days where the promises of God are being fulfilled is every tribe, every tongue, every nation has preached the gospel and given an opportunity to respond to Christ as the church faithfully proclaims it. And so I think it's crucial for us to understand that in these last days, what we are to be busy doing is proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, And we will continue to do that until the last day when the visible return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom comes. So, yes, we're living in the last days. And in these last days, says Hebrews 1, 2, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Second Timothy 3, 1 says, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And man, we are seeing that right and left. It is getting harder and harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus, uh, especially in Western society. And we know that the word of God says that in the last days, we're to expect this. It's just going to be times of difficulty. Jude one eighteen says, in the last time, which is another variation of that phrase, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Second Peter 3, 3 echoes that, says scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Scoffing is an interesting um, um, word in the Bible. It essentially means to mock or to deride or to make fun of someone. Um, and that's kind of interesting to think about because when you turn on the, the, not just the news, you turn on, I think, a movie, TV show, stand-up comedy, Christians are almost always um, made fun of and portrayed as out of touch, as idiotic, as superstitious. Um, anybody that takes the Bible literally, anybody that claims to have some level of you know, faith and certainty in their faith or painted as extremists. And so there's a lot of scoffing going on right now. 
And we shouldn't be surprised by that because the Bible says that that's going to happen in the last days. James 5, 3 says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He's talking about those who are greedy. Um, and that's interesting because <clears throat> 2 Timothy says in the last days people will be lovers of money. And so, uh, yeah, James kind of echoes that. But also here's another interesting promise, and this is um, Acts 2. But Peter quotes from the book of Joel in Acts 2, and this is a promise that God gave in the book of Joel that Peter sees the fulfillment of this in the day of Pentecost. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So even though the last days will be times of great difficulty, there'll be a lot of corruption going on in the world. We're seeing that all around us. There's also something beautiful and unique and powerful that's happening in this time in human history. And it's this, the spirit of God has been made available to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. So man, if you study the old Testament and the Holy spirit in the old Testament, the Holy spirit was only poured out on, prophets and kings and and different leaders for specific purposes. But the prophecy in the book of Joel is that the spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And so now in this period of human history, we see that fulfillment of that, that the Holy Spirit is poured out on young men and old men and sons and daughters, anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. So kind of cool to think about that in the last days we have access to the Holy Spirit, and that is also that we could proclaim this gospel of the kingdom before the end comes. That's what the gospel of Matthew tells us. And so uh, I can kind of link to that question this person asked, is this a 2,000-year period of silence before the events of Revelation? Um, and I would say no. No, it's not. Um and here's why. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So the Holy Spirit is still with us. And so the Holy Spirit is active because it's been poured out on all flesh. Anyone who's called upon the name of Jesus has the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is still alive. And the Bride, which is the Bride of Christ, is active and has a job to do in proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. So I would say that there is not a period of silence. The spirit of God has been poured out. And so God is speaking loud and clear through his word, through his spirit and through his church. And the message that God is communicating to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation in these last days before the last day comes is to believe on his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and be saved from the wrath to come. And God is communicating that every single day through the Spirit and the bride. And so, uh, yeah. So thank you for that question. Whoever sent that in, uh, here's another one. Um, this is a question about expositional and exegetical teaching. Expositional teaching in verse by verse, chapter by chapter is much more effective in learning scripture. Why in the world don't more churches or denominations 
teach that way? Hmm. Let me take a sip of water before I answer this. So, I think we have to answer for some people what that means. Um, expository or expositional teaching. Um, that is a form of teaching or preaching that attempts to present the meaning and intent of the biblical decks. So like what it means when that text was written, why was it written? What was the intent behind it being written? And then from there providing some sort of a commentary and examples to make that passage clear and understandable. And really that's all it means. You know, what does it say? What does it mean? And then what do we do with it? How do we apply it? That's that's exegetical or expository or expositional teaching. You can kind of use all three of those terms interchangeably. And the word exposition um, is related to the word expose. And so an expository teacher, an expository preacher's goal is to simply expose the meaning of the Bible verse by verse. Um and so in in our church, that's the experience community church, we we teach that way and we teach that way exegetically. So we'll go through John's gospel. We'll start at John one. We'll just work our way all the way through John's gospel till we got to the very end of the gospel. And we just started first Samuel this past weekend. And so um, that's one way to teach expositionally, to just do it, you know, exegetically walking your way through a book. Um, we think it's a pretty effective way to learn scripture and to gain a full comprehensive grasp on what the biblical texts are saying in its proper context. Um, however, some churches do it differently. And I think that's what this person's question was. Why do some churches do it differently? You know, this seems to be very effective. You know, why don't more preachers just preach the Bible? That kind of thing. Um, so I'll just play my cards. I, I tend to prefer the exegetical style where you just go through the whole book. I think expository teaching where you're going to the text first and then just unpacking it. That's the best way to preach. That's the best way to teach. So that's kind of my, my bias in this. Um, however, I have heard preachers that teach topically. So instead of like, okay, this morning we're going to preach a, a message on John chapter six, they might say, you know, we're going to talk about, what the Bible has to say about money. And I'm going to pull out, you know, 15 different passages about money to talk about these points that I'm, you know, wanting to unpack on money. And so that would be like a topical teaching. And that would be kind of, um, you know, how a pastor or church might do it if they don't do expositional teaching. So why do some churches do it differently? Well, um, I'll give you some reasons. Some pastors and churches will point to the example of Jesus. So when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus wasn't, you know, taking the Old Testament and going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, although he referenced the Old Testament several times throughout his sermon. Um, it wasn't necessarily exegetical. They point to the Olivet Discourse, uh, parables, things like that, that Jesus preached and Jesus preached topically instead of, um, exegetically or expositionally. Uh, they point to the example of Paul. Paul gave a sermon on Mars Hill. He gave a testimony before before King Agrippa in the book of Acts. And they point to the example of Peter. He gave a sermon on the day of Pentecost to say there's actually 
not really a biblical precedent for expositional teaching. There's more of a biblical precedent for topical teaching. And so many would argue there are, there are no explicit commands in the New Testament that pastors have to teach exegetically. Um, the clear command is simply preach the word. That's 2 Timothy 4.2. But it seems to be like there's a great amount of liberty on to how that's structured and how that's done. Um, I've heard some pastors point to the examples um, you know, of Jesus and Paul and Peter and say that there's an advantage that topical preaching has um, in, in that the focus is not necessarily on the transfer of information and it's more focused on transformation and life change. In other words, you might hear somebody say, well, the goal is change lives. It's not just for people to know more Bible facts, um, which I would kind of push back and argue that lives are changed through the word being preached. But, you know, all that to say, people who who don't teach exegetically or expositionally, many of them have reasons for why they don't. And, and they would feel these are solid biblical reasons. I may disagree with some of them, but, um, you know, to give them the benefit, the benefit of the doubt, um, we'll say it that way. So just a few disclaimers. Um, not all topical sermons are created equal. So not every topical sermon is shallow, unbiblical, and rips verses out of context just because it's topical. Um, I have listened to, over the years, a great number of topical sermons that take certain topics like money, spiritual warfare, marriage, and, and faithfully expound on what the Scripture would have to say on those topics. Um, so, yeah, not, not every topical sermon is you know, shallow and doesn't preach the Word just because the sermon is structured around a certain topic. I, I think you could truly say, man, there are some that are based in the word of God. They're solid biblically. They just happen to be formatted different than a expository exegetical teaching. And then I also go on to say not every exegetical sermon is created equal. Um, I have heard some exegetical sermons that focus so much on the content, um, stuff like word studies, history, um, finer points of theology and really, you know, getting in the nitty gritty of splitting hairs with what this word means in the Hebrew, um, that, that like no time was given in the sermon to how exactly somebody is supposed to apply these things to their lives practically. So it ends up landing a lot more like a lecture on literature than it does an admonition from the word of God to obey and follow the truth of scripture. So, um, just because it's topical doesn't mean that it's not an effective biblical God honoring um, sermon that faithfully presents what the scripture is. And just because it's ex- exegetical doesn't mean that it's actually a faithful God honoring, helpful um, exposition of the word of God. So I think that's why m- some churches preach topically. Um, I think that also answers why some churches don't necessarily preach preach exegetically because of the reasons I gave. But um, I just want to like, I don't know, give a few things to just be aware of. Um, I think we got to be aware of kind of an overgeneralization. 
and often um, just over-assuming when it comes to the question of methodology, of style, and form regarding church liturgy. And when I mean church liturgy, I'm talking about like a format or a structure of how things are done within the worship service. We've we got to be really careful assuming things and overgeneralizing when we see church liturgy. Like just because a church has a pastor that teaches topically doesn't mean it's a church that waters down the truth of the gospel. They, they could be like gospel centered in everything they do. That's just how that pastor tends to format the teaching. And so it doesn't mean that that church is like seeker sensitive, you know, two inches deep and a mile wide. They're not actually teaching the truth. That doesn't mean that at all. So that's a really crazy over assumption. J- just because the church has a worship band and, and dresses casually um, doesn't mean it's a, you know, NAR church, right? If you don't know what NAR is, uh, we did an episode about it. It doesn't mean it's a, um, you know, seeker-sensitive church that has somehow departed from the doctrines of the historic Christian faith, right? And I I would just say, like, hey, we got to be aware of assuming that a topical teacher or a church that has modern music or, you know, a sanctuary that is decorated a certain way that, oh, well, they've got this going on over here, you know, that they must be one of these kinds of churches. Well, not necessarily. It could just be a methodology and style and form thing. And and that doesn't mean that, you know, if, if this one thing that's structured this way is this, then all the other, you know, things point to this. So we got to be really careful about Um. Also, just want to say this. We've got to be aware of any snooty attitudes that border on spiritual superiority when it comes to this thing called preference regarding what your church does that other churches don't, right? So saying, well, at my church, we sing the old, historic, theologically robust hymns of the Christian faith. <laughs> or at my church, we have a time of prayer at the end of every service at the altar. Or at my church, we sing the Psalms. <laughs> I've heard pastors bragging about that, you know. And the Psalms are straight up scripture. And if you, you can't get any better than scripture, so why in the world would a church think that they could, you know, sing something better than scripture? You know, or my church, our pastor teaches exegetically straight from the Bible. Well, I mean, you may very well be getting richly blessed and deeply encouraged in your faith because of how your church does it. I praise God for that. And maybe that's exactly where you need to be. And that's where God's feeding you. And you're, you're so grateful. Your pastor does it a certain way. They do this music a certain way. And that's exactly what you and your family need. But be very careful just because your church does it a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that other churches are wrong if they do it differently. So we we tend to we tend to not think very clearly about which things in worship are actually a matter of preference. Like so many times 
we take things that are simply matters of preference, simply the result of certain church cultures or certain church tribes, and we over-spiritualize that. And we say that, you know, our church does it this way because we're spiritually superior to other churches that don't do it. And I would just say, man, that's that's just your preference. I mean, if you you could give it spiritual language and have reasons for why you do a certain way and yes and amen. But if you're just being honest, man, that's you just prefer it to be that way. And there's nothing wrong with you preferring it to be that way. There's nothing wrong with you wearing khakis to your church because that's what you'd rather wear to church. You'd rather, you know, wear your sport coat and khakis. But that doesn't mean because you're wearing khakis to church that the church down the street where those folks are walking in in jeans, that they're spiritually inferior to you. And so, man, we, we got to be like really careful with snooty attitudes that border on spiritual superiority. And, and to the person who sent in this question via email, 100%, that's not what you're doing. I know you're not doing that. You're just asking for um, maybe some reasons why churches wouldn't do it a certain way. And so I totally get that. I'm not saying that that's what you're doing. I'm just saying for all of us, myself included, myself probably more so than anybody else, because I tend to have a very critical spirit sometimes. Um, we just need to avoid that attitude of spiritual superiority. So that being said, there are types of topical preachers to avoid. And here are a couple telltale signs that you're listening to a topical preacher that's not actually preaching the word. And it's this, when the primary meat of their message is stories, tweetable one-liners, but there are not that many scripture verses. So stories, tweetable one-liners, but not that many scriptures. Like maybe throw in one or two verses, but then the rest of it is just talking about, you know, this funny story of this thing that happened or, you know, your, your, your one-liner that you're just hammering home. I mean, to be honest, that's not really preaching. It's just not. I mean, that's not really teaching either. That's just kind of a, a motivational talk. Um, and so I'd say, yeah, you're, you're not listening to preaching at that point. You're listening to something else. When the teaching tends to only be on certain pet topics. So when the totality of the word of God is not being preached faithfully through, so you're not getting the full counsel of God's word. You're just getting series on money and tithing. You're getting messages on faith. You're getting messages on marriage and relationships, which, by the way, the Bible speaks to all of those things, and all of those things are things we should be talking about in church. And the scriptures should be informing and shaping how we think about those things. But if it's like the same four or five topics that just get cycled through over and over and over and over and over and over again, and you're sitting under that kind of teaching or preaching, you're going to find yourself spiritually emaciated because you're not getting fed the full counsel of God's word. And when the teaching never deals with hard issues or difficult texts, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit suspect. And when the teaching seeks primarily to entertain or to inspire, and and sometimes I feel like I'm, I see certain teachers and preachers, especially on TV. <laughs> Be careful because I don't want to name any names. Um, and and like everything is about inspiring people. And there was one I was watching the other day. I just turned on the TV and this 
individual was preaching and they had the band still up on stage behind them through their whole message. And the band wasn't playing the whole time, but the band was there ready to play when the preacher started getting really animated and riled up. And then there were like a group of people sitting on the front row that every single thing this person said was just like, Oh, amen. 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 I'm watching it. I'm like, man, this like borders on straight up emotional manipulation. Because what the guy was saying was really not all that profound. But if he yelled it and he said it over and over again and the band started swelling up with music behind him and he started clapping his hands and shouting and everybody's clapping and giving him a standing ovation, this really basic truth that you probably learned when you were in Sunday school or BBS seemed like this profound revelation from God. And uh, I would just say, man, that's, that's just emotional manipulation. And that's hype. And over time, man, that that just kind of gets exposed for what it is. So, yeah, I'd say be careful on that. Same time, the type of exegetical preachers to avoid is when the preaching is so focused on things like word studies, history, systematic theology, and the facts about the passage. And the application of it never gets explained. That is bad exegetical preaching. And I would say that's not helpful for you or anybody else. Um, when the preaching is presented with a kind of um, <laughs> sniffing, arrogant, holier-than-thou manner or an overly cerebral know-it-all presentation, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. And so if it's all about just giving people knowledge for the sake of puffing, puffing people up, I would say it's not helpful for anybody. And if the preaching never points people to Jesus and worship and awe and wonder and faith and relational love it is simply not preaching. It is an academic lecture. And there's a time and a place for academic lectures. But I would say that um, when the people of God gather, that's probably not the time and place for an academic lecture. So there you go. That is a long answer to a question about why don't more churches teach expositionally or exegetically. So there you go. Two questions from the uh, the mailbag. So let's move on, shall we? To a headline, to a news story that has been trending. And if you are anywhere on the interwebs or social media, or even if you watch cable news, maybe you've heard this story. And if you haven't, because you've been living under a rock, I'll see if I can read the a news article, because it's on all the news outlets. And it is this. Um, this is from... NPR.com. This was written on July 20th, 2023. So this is about two weeks ago, I guess. And uh, here's the title of the article. How Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town Became a Political Controversy. And here's there's a picture of... Our friend Jason Aldean, he has a guitar, and <laughs> on the neck of the guitar, he has his name printed. I wonder if his name is printed because he doesn't want to lose it, and so he had his name, you know, imprinted on the neck of the guitar. Maybe not. Maybe it's because he's, you know, he's got his own merch. But here's what the article says. Country Music Television, CMT, will no longer air the music video, Try That in a Small Town, by Jason Aldean after critics of the video said it contained lyrics that glorified gun violence and conveyed traditionally 
racist ideas. Wow. That's coming in hot. Wow. A CMT spokesperson confirmed the move to NPR on Thursday, but offered no comment on the reasoning. Since the video is released on Friday, it's emerged as a familiar kind of political litmus test. (laughs) With interpretations of its message often falling along voting divides. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if anybody else is sick of just that. Just like the way this article describes a familiar kind of political litmus test. I mean, yeah. I feel like that happens all the time. Something happens, something comes out. I think a few years ago it was like Goya beans or something. Trump said something about Goya beans, and all of a sudden people who were liberal said, well, nobody's going to eat Goya beans. We're not going to serve Goya beans anymore in a restaurant. And all the conservatives were like, we're going to eat Goya beans. And people went out and bought Goya beans. And I'm like, seriously, beans? Beans is the test of whether or not you're politically conservative or you're politically liberal. And so then, you know, Jason Aldean comes out with a song. Apparently, if you like this song, is a test on whether or not you are politically liberal or you're politically conservative. It's crazy. So here's what the article says. What, here's an overview of the situation. What is Try That in a Small Town about? <clears throat> Aldine, a 46-year-old country singer from Macon, Georgia, first released the song in May, but it wasn't until the release of the video on July 14th, that's less than a month ago, that the discourse ratcheted up. In a statement released alongside the video, Aldine said the song represents an unspoken rule for those raised in small towns. We all have each other's backs, (laughs) and we look out for each other. Hmm. Here's what I find interesting. It says that he's from Macon, Georgia. Which Macon, Georgia, by the way, 153,000 in Macon, Georgia. Not exactly a small town. Just not. I live in a town of about 3,000. The county I live in is about 13,000. I live in a small town. But Jason Aldean does not. And so for him to say, we all have each other's back. We? We? You weren't raised in a small town, dude. You grew up in Macon. Essentially a suburb of Atlanta. And then it says, the singer is not credited as a writer for the song. Oh, big surprise there. Um, who, who wrote the song? Well, I went and looked up who wrote the song. Uh, the person who wrote the song, it's actually a, a writing team of people who wrote this song. Let's see. Uh, Kelly Lovelace. He is a big time Nashville songwriter. He worked with Brad Paisley. He wrote the song Ticks. He didn't have to be. So Kelly Lovelace has been around Nashville since probably 1999. So over 20 years, written some huge, huge hits. Another guy by the name of Neil Thrasher who has co-written with Jason Aldean quite a bit, and he had a big hit with Rascal Flatts called Fast Cars and Freedom. Maybe you've heard that one. And then two other writers, Tully Kennedy and Kurt Allison. So Jason Aldean did not write this song. Jason Aldean did not grow up in a small town. Um, 
so yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. We all have each other's back and we all look out for each other. Well, sorry, buddy. You didn't grow up in a small town, so I don't know what, what, what we you're talking about. The article goes on threats to outsiders and the implication those outsiders are from cities are present throughout the song's lyrics, which begin with a list of crimes that might happen in urban settings. Sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, then then crescendo into the titular chorus. We'll try that in a small town. I feel like I should read this like Morgan Freeman. Try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. (laughs) Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take you long for you to find out, and I recommend you don't. Hmm. Aldine ups the vigilante ante by bridging the second course with a reference to gun rights, singing, I've got a gun my granddad gave me. They say one day they're going to round it up. Well, that, shh. I don't know why just the word S with four other, three other stars is written by. Oh, I know. It's a cuss word. Okay. Well, that um, cuss word might fly in the city. Good luck. But try that in a small town. So the video is apparently so divisive because between shots of Aldine's singing are clips of vandalizing riots and police encounters. And so I guess people from a liberal vantage point are saying that the vandalizing riot and police encounters, all of that is related to racial injustice protests. That's what this article says that they are. So very interesting. Very interesting. This has kind of emerged as a litmus test for which side of the culture war you tend to be on, which I I kind of find that um, bizarre and frustrating and a bit comical when that happens, as I mentioned earlier with with the Goya beans a few years ago. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just a few observations. I'm thinking about it. Number one, it's probably really frustrating for people who are politically conservative that don't like country music that (laughs) woke up and thought, oh, man, now I've got to defend Jason Aldean and be a fan of country music. Ah, dang it. So that's frustrating. Sorry for all those people who are really involved in the culture war and they're conservative and don't like country music. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think... I think I see Al Dean's point, but I think there's some some naivety going on and some misrepresentation going on and some inaccuracy going on. I, I, I think the song may be implying in some way that some of the violence and the crime that you may see in urban areas doesn't exist in rural areas, for example, small towns. Because, according to the song, small towns are full of good old boys raised upright. That's a phrase from the song itself. Okay. And so, in some ways, I guess, you know, overall, crime tends to be lower in rural areas than urban areas. But if you look a little bit closely, more closely at kind of that fact, a couple things pop up. Number one, I think this is a little bit um, 
I don't know, a, a little interesting. The top two U.S. counties that experienced the most gun homicides per capita from 2016 to 2020 were two rural counties, and that was Phillips County, Arkansas, with 55.45 age-adjusted homicides per 100,000, and Loudness County, Alabama, with 48.36 age-adjusted homicides per 100,000. So, sorry, Jason Aldean. Actually, most gun homicides per capita were two small towns. So, yeah. So, I don't know if those were people who were killed because they were trying stuff in a small town. <laughs> That's why they got shot. Or, I don't know. So, yeah. So, crime is not is not necessarily always lower in rural areas. On the whole, it is, but a lot of criminologists say that there's other factors that contribute to that. So housing unit and population density is one big factor. There's other socioeconomic factors. And so it's a pretty big misunderstanding of small-town America to say that small-town America is completely chock-full of good old boys who were raised right and look out for each other. Now, that being said, I live in a small town. I get along great with my neighbors and we do look out for each other. Our dog has gone missing several times and literally all of the neighbors and the farms and houses and property around us were on the lookout for our dog. And I was super, super grateful for that. That was amazing. People in a small town know each other's names People in small towns are always keeping an eye on on each other in terms of if I go out of town, you know, I always know people are driving by my house and the property we live out here and making sure things are okay. So, so yes, in one sense, 100%, people are looking out for each other in small towns. But one of the biggest misunderstandings of small town America is that a small town is the modern Mayberry. You know, Mayberry, the town you'd see on the Andy Griffith show. Um, I think like country music presents a picture of small towns that that doesn't really exist. And so like if you actually live in a small town, your kids go to school in small towns, you pastor in a small town like I do, a couple of things become pretty obvious and that is that small towns are marked by poverty. They're marked by drug abuse. They're marked by broken families. Um, they're marked by meth labs, sometimes even human trafficking. So it's a pretty like, it's a pretty massive oversimplification to say that small towns are full of good old boys who were raised right and crime doesn't happen here because we don't let it happen because we'll, we'll put a, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll stop that. Right. I mean, we're, we're all, you know, let me just read. This is from, this is a great book. This is called small town Jesus by Donnie Griggs. He writes about small town ministry. This is what he says. That's pretty disturbing. He says eighth graders in rural America are 104% likelier than those in urban cities urban centers to use amphetamines, including methamphetamines, and 50% likelier to use cocaine. 
Eighth graders in rural areas are also 83% likelier to use crack cocaine and 34% likelier to smoke marijuana than eighth graders in urban centers. Bluntly put, meth has come to Main Street along with other drugs and with magnum force aimed at our children. We've long heard the warning and we're trying to reach beyond the cities to the suburbs and rural areas to see the reach of drugs across America. Interesting. That's about eighth graders in rural America. So the mythology is that small towns, if you turn on the country station, you listen to any country song, it's just full of pickup trucks and people in boots and everybody goes to church and has, you know, conservative values. And, you know, you try that in a small town out here, we know how to take care of each other and all that stuff. And, and the truth is like, okay, yeah, in some ways. But if you're suggesting that small towns are like the example of morality, you, you're, you don't live in a small town. You live in Macon, Georgia. So you probably take your kids to a pumpkin patch in the fall. And that's what you think about small towns because you're there once a year. You don't live there. You don't send your kids to school there. Right? And, and so, like, those who would say that people in small towns, everybody goes to church, everybody knows Jesus. Well, no. I, I pastor in a small town. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that while people in small towns may be very, very religious, because generationally they've been raised up religious, very few of them actually know the gospel. I would say small towns have an assumed gospel where one generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And then the generation to follow denies the gospel. So I think most people in small towns are in that generation of an assumed gospel. So, like a loose form of Christian ethics and morality, kind of when it's convenient for you. But when you're going out and you're getting drunk with your tailgate down by your truck at the Walmart on a Friday night, you don't, you don't believe the gospel. Jesus isn't your king. Jesus isn't your Lord. So if the song is somehow saying the violent crime you see on the news isn't going to happen in small-town America because small-town America is a paragon of virtue and morality, I would say that is an incredibly naive and a completely out-of-touch characterization of small towns. All right? However, if that song is saying that those who are on the other side of a culture war, liberal America, better not come in and try to start a riot in a small town because they'll have to deal with good old boys who were raised right, who have guns that have been passed down generationally, then, um, okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's a bit concerning. The video was uh, filmed in the square in front of uh, the courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee, and the, one of the reasons that I think people got really upset is because that was the site of a lynching, the video where he's singing, you know, try that in a small town, and where he's singing, that was the site of a lynching. And so, yeah, that's a little bit tone deaf. That's probably a little bit too far. But I think with people who are overreacting about this and coming in and saying that, you know, people in small towns are just basically – KKK members and their white supremacists and anybody different with a different color skin is 
going to get run out of town on a rail because that's what small town people are like. I think that that is a incredibly unfair characterization of people in small towns that displays a tremendous amount of ignorance for a huge majority of people who live in the U S um, because by the way, um, small town, um, like U S census in 2010, there were 33 million people living in small towns of under 25,000 people. So a lot of people in the U S live in small towns. And, and, and here's what I know because I spent a lot of time around a lot of them. Um, they're really afraid of a merit, an America that does not represent them. And what I mean by that is not necessarily race. What I mean by that is not necessarily um, education levels. What I mean by that is an America that mischaracterizes them as out of touch rednecks that don't know their butt from a hole in the ground and makes fun of them and makes them feel little and like makes them feel small. And so they're scared of an America that looks nothing like them and threatens to impose sweeping changes that really would, would not benefit them at all in the least bit. So even, you know, the, the, the song talks about guns that my granddaddy gave me. Okay. So real talk, I own a lot of guns. And almost everybody I know that lives in a rural area owns a lot of guns. It's not because I'm a gun nut that walks around packing heat looking for somebody to shoot all the time. If there was a home in invasion in my house, right? Somebody walked in my house and you know threatened my wife and children. If I tried to call the cops to come and get them to solve it, number one, I live about 15 minutes from the closest town. Okay. Number two, I don't get good cell phone service. <laughs> but I've never had to worry about home invasions out here. But I have had to worry about coyotes. I have had to worry about um, possums. I have had to worry about pests, right? Um, a few years ago, I shot a squirrel who was eating the siding off of our house. Okay, almost everyone I know that lives out in rural areas owns a gun for those reasons. It's not because they're walking around looking for someone with a different skin color as they are to shoot them. It's if you live in a rural area that's off the grid, you almost have to have a firearm as a tool. And so when you hear rhetoric that says nobody should be allowed to hear a gun, uh, nobody should be allowed to own a gun, rather, um, there's a lot of people in rural areas that get really up in arms about that, not because they're foaming at the mouth white supremacists looking to shoot brown and black people, because they're completely misunderstood by people who know nothing about their way of life. And so overall, I think the threats, if the song is intelligent enough to make those threats, which I would just argue, I don't think the song is intelligent enough to even know what it's doing. But I think people in small town America are misunderstood. They don't feel heard and they don't feel represented fairly. It's either one of two extremes, either one, People see them as people that live in Mayberry because people only come to small towns on vacation or to you know bring their kids to a pumpkin farm, or 
people see them as a bunch of ignorant rednecks that don't know their butt from a hole in the ground. And neither of those things is true about people who lived in small towns. So overall, I think the controversy is a little silly. Um, number one, the song isn't that great. I think country music, about 98% of it is probably the least intelligent music that's being made today. Yeah, if you don't like it, you can send Gabe an email. <laughs> um, I think you're going to have to make a huge stretch to say the song is inherently racist. I don't really, I don't really think you, I don't know. That's a, that's quite a stretch there. But I do think the song is a bit naive in representing small town values. I think what makes it so interesting is how, like the article said, folks have a tendency to overreact and run to one side of the other when it comes to these flashpoints that tend to be litmus test for which side you're on in the culture war. And it just gets sillier and sillier and sillier, the things that we do that with. We do that with a you know, a can of beans, quite literally, and we'll do that with a country song. It's really not all that great. That, yeah. So anyway, interesting stuff, though. We live in very, very interesting times. So if you made it this far, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out with me all, all solo-like. I miss Gabe. I miss being able to bounce things back and forth off him. But uh, next time he will be back, and I look forward to unpacking with him how his Israel trip went. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions, concerns, cries of outrage, if your name is Jason Aldean and you want to send me an email, <laughs> just kidding. Jason Aldean, some of your songs are okay, but this one, not so much. Anyway, we'll see you guys next time. Send us an email. Send us a Facebook or a YouTube comment, and we will see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review. Or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.